Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is industry guru Bob Veras on achieving excellence in building the advisory firm of the future. It's a conversation with one of wealth management's most influential thought leaders and the editor and publisher of Inside Information. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make this series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. There are few in the financial services media that have the name recognition and clout of Bob Veras, and even less who are as smart and outspoken. Because for over four decades, Bob has been at the helm of journalism in the wealth management industry, having served as the editor of Financial Planning Magazine, as a contributing editor to the Journal of Financial Planning, as a columnist and editor-at-large of Investment Advisor Magazine, and as editor of Morningstar's advisor website. But the way I see it is this. Bob's perspective on the wealth management space hones from a vast depth of experience and knowledge fills a critical gap for our listeners, particularly prospective breakaways. Because he comes at this not representing a firm or model, but instead fully objective, as someone who has seen all sides of the circle and has a clear vision of why independence is better for advisors and their clients. And for both those considering independence, as well as current business owners, Bob has sage advice on building an enterprise designed for growth, stability, and continuity. Today, Bob's newsletter, Inside Information, and his annual Insiders Forum serve as part guide, part master study group, and part networking community for advisors looking for the essentials on running and growing prosperous businesses and better serving clients. He's got a keen sense of technology and its role in building a wealth management firm and a deep understanding of the real potential of independence. And his commentary on the brokerage world, AUM, and commission is, well, you'll find out. Bob's won countless industry and journalism awards, including the Jesse H. Neal Award from the American Business Media Group, considered the most prestigious editorial honor in the field of specialized journalism, and the ASBE Award of Excellence from the American Society of Business Press Editors. On top of all that, he's an author of five novels and the industry tome, The New Profession. As such, it's both an honor and privilege to have Bob on the show to share his knowledge and help advisors and business owners fully realize their ability to build an advisory firm that will last long into the future. So let's get to it. Bob, I can't thank you enough for making the time to join me today. I'm excited for our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the financial services world. 
there's kind of a long story to how I got started. I was hired as editor of Financial Planning Magazine back in the 1980s before I had ever balanced my own checkbook. So um, to say I was underqualified is kind of kind of understating the situation. And I faced a learning curve that goes straight up. And the most interesting thing about that is that in my whole 40-year career, that learning curve has gotten steeper. It seems like every year there's a lot more to learn, a lot more to understand, a lot more people to talk to. And um, so, you know, I got started in as an editor. I realized and kind of knew at the time that I was really more suited to being a writer and finding out stuff. And that's kind of where I found myself. So today I know you're editor and publisher of the industry-leading publication, Inside Information. Tell us a little bit about what you focus on these days and about the publication and the target audience it serves. Okay, well, the target audience is easy. It's the people who think and read in the financial services industry. And that's not, that may be as many as one-tenth of the total people in the advisor profession. And those people have an unfair advantage. They have more information and more preparation for what's coming at them than anybody else. I wish there were more of those people because my target audience would be bigger, but um, there's a relatively small number of people who want to stay on top of everything. And I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, Everybody wants to help other people. That's, That's the thing you find in this profession. Not everybody is a student of their profession. My target audience is people who are trying to figure things out, and I try and help them figure out what's happening. Well, I recently co-authored a white paper about the advisory firm of the future, which tries to identify the next iteration of advisory firms. I published a fee survey report, which shows how advisors are adapting their fee structures. I did a survey on which conferences advisors said they got the most value of. Um, With Joel Brookenstein, I do an annual tech survey that shows the market share and user ratings of 300 software products and services. And my newsletter mostly comes from, the the focus comes from my readers. They tell me what they're thinking about, what worries them, what they've seen that's interesting and noteworthy. And over the years, I've collected more than a thousand eyes and ears in every corner of the profession. And that drives what I write about. Are the advisors that are reading primarily at traditional brokerage firms, are they independent? Where are they? I have very few brokerage firm readers, and the ones I do, it's interesting. I run into them at conferences, you know, and they're very thoughtful, and they're very consumer-oriented, and I tell them, could you please leave the brokerage world so I can say with a straight face that everybody who works in the brokerage world is a dirtbag? Because I can't say that, and I can't, it's not truthful if they're still there. There are a lot of people in the brokerage world who I think are appropriate for the independent world, but they're not there in, for some reason. But mostly the people I write for are independent. Most of them are fee-only, but some of them are mostly fee-only who are affiliated with the independent broker-dealers. So I want to unpack more of the the white papers you've written and some of the stuff you focus on. But that comment, and I know you said it tongue-in-cheek, that dirtbags that work in the traditional brokerage space, what is it that gives rise to that comment? It's really the culture of the firm's. The thing that that I've always written about, about the brokerage firms, is that their incentives are wrong. I remember somebody told me once that their um, local branch manager had a group meeting, and after every group meeting, there would be a cheer, money. 
And another person told me about there was a his branch manager had a sign in his office that said, happiness can't buy money. My sense is that the incentives are how much can you produce, not how much benefit can you give your clients. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that every advisor adopts, but it, it does come from the top down. The firm's primarily seem to me to have a culture of how much money can you make and let's keep score on that. And that's not the ethos of the, the fiduciary financial planning world. That's probably right. And I think that you're not wrong that big brokerage firms have an eye on profitability and profit margins. But I think that there are many, many, many advisors that think of themselves as fiduciaries within this world. Many of them are thinking about moving toward independence, but even the ones that don't, don't buy into the ethos you're talking about. So I think that there's some truth to what you're saying, but perhaps not entirely. But let me ask you another question. I know one of the things you also run is this insiders forum. You had told me when we talked offline that it was scheduled to be held in person this year. Is that still the case? And what is the conference? It's sort of an extension of my newsletter. It's the same target audience. It's the elite of the profession, the people who are ahead of the curve and who I jokingly say that the target audience is people who go to a traditional national conference and they walk out of the sessions muttering, I could have given that presentation better than that person. If they're right, they're in our target, our target audience. So that means that we don't have to dumb down any of our sessions. We don't have to have anybody explain you know, what is diversification and how do the correlation coefficients work? The audience already knows all that stuff. We have everybody smart up their presentations. Don't give the same presentation that you would give at other conferences. Make it a little edgier and make it a little more relevant to an upper, more thoughtful audience, if that makes sense. Now, those people are really difficult to please, but we love them because if you can please them, you've really accomplished something. Yeah. And are you having it in person this year? We're having it in person. We're doing, um, I mean, we're watching everything, of course. And, you know, last year we canceled. One of the things I like to say is that we have 100% survival rate in our conference, and we're really proud of that track record. And so we're hoping not to change that. We went virtual last year, but we did it kind of differently. We spaced out the presentations over a period of four months so that you didn't, you weren't spending three days of your time in our conference virtually. Yeah. On Zoom, and we yeah. But I'm hoping we won't. Good. I hope so for your sake, too. So let me ask you, I've heard you say that the financial services profession is suddenly having to adjust to several rapid evolutionary shifts. What are those shifts? The first one, and perhaps the most important one, is that the value proposition is shifting from managing assets to providing advice and service, which is really what every other profession hangs its hat on, you know, the quality of advice and the knowledge, the specialized knowledge, rather than a particular service that you're providing, if that makes sense. I see managing assets as a service, not as a component of expertise, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so how has the role of the advisor changed as a result? One of the changes that, that I'm watching is the change in the revenue model. If you're charging by AUM, by assets under management, that tells the client implicitly that your value is managing those assets. And most advisors tell me my value is giving advice, but I'm still charging for managing the assets. And so there's a 
fairly significant mixed message there. And I think sooner or later, we're going to have to move to a either a flat fee or maybe some will change to hourly and some. And I, I did a report on that to ask people what they were thinking in that area. And I got a 30-page analysis of what they were doing. But when you sit down with a client, instead of immediately burying your nose in their finances, which, which I have experienced when I was a financial planning consumer, um, the, 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 the advisor immediately said, well, let's take a look at your portfolio. And that wasn't what I was there for. And I think that's not what most clients are there for. And so the first thing, the tenor of the meetings change. My best advice to advisors is when they, a, a prospect first walks in, instead of saying, what is your portfolio? How much do you have? Um, instead, say, what brings you here? Tell me your story. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are you about? And then exploring how your expertise can help them achieve what they're trying to achieve or not. And if you can't, then they're not a, an appropriate client for you, no matter how many assets they have. That actually is my next question. So how have chi- clients changed? In other words, are clients demanding this shift in the way advisors serve clients or which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> well, the clients, I don't think, really know what they want until they experience it. And so my sense is that when a client sits down or a prospect sits down with an advisor and the advisor immediately buries their nose in the, in the portfolio statement, there's a discomfort. There's a, a disconnect. When the advisor says, tell me your story and listens more than speaks, then I think the client realizes this is an experience that I'm going to enjoy. This is someone who's genuinely interested in me. And you know, one, one of the things I've done many presentations on the seven components of excellent advisor service. And one of the most important insights that comes out of that is that most clients, almost all clients, don't know how to evaluate your expertise. There's no way for them to know how much you know. And so they have to form their judgment of you based on your behavior. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you finding interesting areas in their lives and commenting on them in a knowledgeable way? So I don't think consumers know to ask for this, but I think they know it when they see it. I think they recognize that some advisors are more relevant to their lives than others, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And Bob, would you be willing to share with us? So what are some of the components of excellent client service? So it's six dimensions. The interesting thing, the way this came about was that I asked my audience, I said, what is excellent service? How do you define it? Because, you know, you go to conferences and they say, you know, great service, provide great service. Well, that's a really good idea. Let's provide great service. What is it? How do you measure it? How do you define it? And so I asked my readers, I said, you know, I I have never heard anybody define exactly what excellent client service is. So my readers sent me back this incredible hodgepodge, like 200 pages of all different ideas about what they think is client service. And so I went through that and I started grouping it and I eventually grouped it into six different categories. And I can give you the categories, but, um, you know, it's, it's set clear expectations. If you set clear expectations, then you can exceed them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, being responsive to client requests, and that means a lot of different things. But, you know, one of them is how, how quickly do you respond to their phone calls or emails or 
how quickly do you set up a meeting with them when they, they want a meeting? And you can measure that. Creating enjoyable interactions when you have these meetings. So that, that covers things like having their beverages, having a, a special place set aside for them to park when they come to see you, you know, and maybe one, one advisor puts a little sign out there. Um, one of the nicest touches about that is an advisor says that when he has female clients come to visit, he will walk her out to her car and make sure she gets to her car safely. And that apparently women really respond to that. Number four is providing high quality professional advice. And I think we all hang our hat on that. That's an important component of service and the hardest thing for clients to measure. The fifth was exhibiting exemplary conduct and character. And the joke I always tell in the presentations is that if you're stealing from your client, you're probably not passing the the number Mm -hmm. five test. There's also a section in there about how to offer an apology when a mistake is made and how to repair the client relationship when a mistake is made. And that requires a certain amount of character and courage because you're admitting a mistake and you're talking about how you're going to fix it and repairing the damage. And the number six was visibly caring about clients' well-being, visibly caring that they are improving their lives as a result of working with you. Yeah. And you can't fake that. That's, that's probably the most important in terms of getting referrals or otherwise impressing clients with how great it is to work with you. Yeah. It's funny. This list seems like pretty common sense, but it's probably not everyone executes it well. So I appreciate you sharing that. How about with respect to the shifting demographic toward younger clients? What does that look like? And what are the kinds of things that advisors should be doing when thinking about adapting their firms to serving the next generation? Well, the first thing you have to do is change your revenue model. You know, somebody comes in, they're in their mid-30s, they're a professional, they've got good income, they're capable of paying your fees, but they don't have assets to manage. So the value proposition is different right off the bat. And you can't charge them based on their assets because if they don't have assets, you're not going to be able to pull it out of their portfolio. So there has to be a different revenue model. But, you know, more than that, you know, when I talk to younger people, I say, would you pay 1% of your assets to an advisor? And they laugh at me. The next generation of clients is not going to be willing to work with people on an AUM basis, if that makes sense. So the baby boomers, I think there are still some services that the baby boomers need, and those have shifted. Tax-aware decumulation, talking about how much you can decumulate and how. Um, There are a lot of later stage life issues that that clientele is going to need that are not traditional financial planning services. And the younger people coming up, you know, you've got kinds of advice that, that have not traditionally been, been provided, you know, like student loan debt management and budgeting and how to navigate your, you know, most young people, there a lot of their monetary value of their life is bound up in their ability to earn income in the future. And so disability insurance becomes a huge part of the conversation. Life insurance comes back into play. A lot of advisors don't worry about life insurance anymore because they're dealing with people who are toward the end of their careers and moving into retirement. 
So as you're dealing with Gen X and millennial clients, you've got a number of different kinds of things to talk about. And not only that, they're a lot more tech savvy. They're more tech demanding. A lot of advisors I talk to, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s. And, you know, this whole technology thing is kind of befuddling to them. That's not going to cut it with a Gen X or a millennial client anymore. actually a good pivot point to my next question. I read something you wrote a while ago that said the firm of the future will be more efficient, more effective, and offer better service and advice to its clients. From a marketing standpoint, it will stand out in the existing sea of sameness, and its technology will be completely different from the tools used by its predecessors. Can you unpack that for us? What does all that mean to you? What does that look like specifically? (laughs) Well, that came directly out of the white paper on the advisory firm of the future. We went into chapter and verse, and actually I did a four-part series on what we learned from the 16 consultants that we talked to about where it's all going and, and what are the characteristics of the most efficient and effective advisory firms and what would you like to see them do. And so a couple of things that came out, I mean, I can't paraphrase the whole white paper. It's pretty long. And then my articles were much longer. Each article was longer than the white paper. But the advisory firm of the future will have a full-time manager of the firm. It will have a robust process for allowing its staff members to progress in the profession, to become smarter. There will be internal and external encouragement, if you will, of enhancing your professionalism, enhancing your knowledge of the business, building your career. There'll be career ladders. I just wrote a profile of a company that instead of putting their clients first, they put their staff people first. And because they put their staff people first, they probably provide better client service than any other firm that I could name. So from a management standpoint, there's a a lot of focus on the staff and on the culture, if you will. From a marketing standpoint, we talked about pro-personal marketing, which is, you know, we're in this age of social media. I think a lot of advisory firms need to get with a picture there. You have people who have a picture of the founder of the firm, and he looks, he's dressed to the nines, and He or she, they look like a walking bank. There's something slightly intimidating about them. There's no personal information about that person at all. It's just, you know, I have a CFP. I have three or four other credentials. I'm really smart. I serve on these boards. And I think the, the effect today is to intimidate rather than impress. And so what we said, what we heard from our consultants was that consumers these days are looking for who are you? What are you about? Tell me more about yourself so I I understand who you are outside the firm, who you are outside the profession. What are your interests? And the pictures that you put on your website would be of the different interests you have and what you do and how how you interact with the world, if that makes sense. And more than that, the whole firm becomes a marketing magnet. Everybody on staff has their own social media presence. And everybody on staff has these hobbies and interests listed and shown in the the pictures. And one of the most interesting things we found was that the consultants were recommending a different staff member. The staff member was 
It was a director of client experience and marketing, I think. And basically what that person did was tend, and we haven't gotten to the client experience yet, but tend the client experience and advocate for the client experience and for the constant improvement of it. And at the same time, the coach and mentor of every member of the staff helping them create their own unique marketing outreach within the firm. And so the whole firm becomes a marketing magnet. And then on the service side, we talked earlier about one of the important changes that's happening. Well, you know, everybody is on Zoom now. Everybody's doing these video conferencing with clients and clients are buying into that. And all of a sudden we, we've mastered the technology, which it took, it's amazing that it took a pandemic to do that, but it, it, that's where we are. But now I can meet with anybody on either side of the Mississippi just as easily as I used to meet with people in person. And that means everybody is competing with everybody else in everybody else's backyard. So what are the implications of that? The most important is that you need to specialize in a certain kind of clientele. You can't be the best advisor for everybody. And when you specialize, you get deeper into the challenges, the unique challenges that every profession, every client group faces And you're able to address those at a deeper and more comprehensive level and therefore offer better service. And that's when the profession gets that magical point where people are willing and even eager to pay for advice rather than for all the ancillary things that advisors offer, like asset management. So, you know, Bob, this is incredible. And I've got a million questions, but a lot of our audience are prospective breakaway advisors. So advisors that are sitting at big brokerage firms that are considering going independent. And so given that perspective, what's the key takeaway for a prospective breakaway advisor? If they're launching a firm and we think about beginning with the end in mind, what should they be aware of? And maybe you can address that also from a technology perspective. How does that work? Well, the, the first thing I would do, and you know, earlier, I suppose what I said was insulting, but basically what I said was that the really good advisors within the brokerage environment have to protect themselves against the culture that they find themselves in. And so if they're looking to go independent, they'll immediately realize that the culture that was asking them to produce rather than benefit the client is no longer tugging at their mind share, if that makes sense. That's what I was trying to communicate earlier. But to answer your question, the first thing I would do is define a target client. And that would be the people I really enjoy working with, who have something in common with, and really feel like I can help. And then I would define a really terrific service package that addresses those people's most pressing needs. And then finally, you know, I'd I'd put together a website and have it talk directly to those people. And most importantly, I would tell client success stories that illustrate my value in very specific ways. So somebody can go on my website and say, that's me. And wow, that's a challenge I faced. And wow, that's a happy ending. And I would like to have that happy ending. The word that comes to mind is authenticity. Even when you were talking about social media, that it's less about canned pictures and more about just authentically showing up as you are and letting clients know who you are, picking your lane, sticking to it and being authentic. I agree. And the more you can show of who and what you are, the more people will relate to more people that you want to relate to you will relate to you. Yeah. You know, two questions. So one is just 
about technology. So what does this firm of the future look like from a technological perspective? Well, you know, it's interesting. We, we asked that question in a dozen different ways. And the answer always came back that we don't really have the software that the advisory firm of the future will need. We have all these different isolated, different softwares, you know, the CRM over here and the planning program over there and the portfolio management over somewhere else. And, and it's all siloed. It's not all put together. So what I would do is I would, first of all, you've, you've got the client experience that you want people to have. And then what software can I adapt to this customized service package? And for example, you know, if I'm targeting younger clients who have good incomes, I'd use different planning software. There's something called Elements out there. And Elements is, I think, the perfect planning program for younger people. If I'm working with pre-retirees in a specific niche, you know, you've got something like Income Lab, and that gives you long-term tax-aware retirement projections. And it gives you all the information that traditional Monte Carlo analysis leaves on the table. You want a CRM program where you can put together a really good, and, and there are several programs that do this. Accelerate from Consenter Services is a, an overlay of Salesforce. Um, Redtail is excellent. Put together a workflow that gives you a, a roadmap for how to provide this service in a in sort of mass customization process, if you will. There are niche software programs that people aren't using. There's something called I-65 for Medicare planning. Depending on who your clients are, there are, I think, really good niche programs that will do a better job, I think, than the generic programs that are more for a person who doesn't specialize, who's a generalist. And then break down the client experience into granular tasks and who's going to perform them and how is that going to be performed. And at the end of every quarter, I'd print out a summary of all the tasks that our firm handled for each client. And I would collect from each client goals and then help them achieve those goals and then show them their personal goals that they've achieved over the last year or since inception of the relationship. Very helpful. Let me go back to, we talked about social media. It seems to me that the industry adapted to it rather slowly. I mean, not that long ago, advisors at brokerage firms weren't even allowed to use it. So where do you think we are now and where do you think we're headed in terms of how most advisors use social media today and how they should be using it? The key takeaway for brokers and advisors in the brokerage environment is that they will finally be able to interact without interference with the media on social media. And the, the phrase I use is, you'll be able to communicate with your clients like an adult, which means there won't be a compliance department monitoring everything you say and everything you send out. So that's the thing that people suddenly realize when they, they become independent is that they have more freedom to communicate through these various channels. But I really don't see social media per se as a marketing tool so much as I see it as a validation tool. People want to check you out on social media. And if you're not on social media, they wonder, well, what's, what's he hiding? You know, what's she hiding? Maybe there's that sex offender conviction that they don't want people to know about or something. You're free to make inferences if they're not on social media that you don't make when they're, they're fully exposing themselves to who and what they are. So, you know, I would use social media as a validation tool. There are some people that post articles on 
social media, and that's perfectly fine, although I don't know a lot of prospects who read detailed articles, and you can also post those in your website, and they're going to check out your website, so I'm not sure if there's a huge benefit there. But the other part of it is being able to interact with the media without someone telling you, no, you can't, or I want to fact check everything you say. You can talk to your local newspaper or TV station or, you know, the some of the online services and offer yourself up as a resource without somebody interfering with that process. Yeah, I think that comes back to that word again, authenticity. It's about showing who you are authentically so that the right people can connect with you. Yeah, I think that's right. talk about the evolutionary migrations in the financial advisor profession from broker to independent broker dealer rep and from salesperson to AUM focus to fee only. So what do you think are the benefits or drawbacks of each of these practice models? I see it as a continuum of evolution, if that makes sense. The broker who is sales focused, who could sell ice cubes to Eskimos Um, which tells me they're comfortable selling things that people don't really need. They're at the back of the evolutionary process. And I think the next evolution of a career is you leave the brokerage world and you gain, many people can make the leap directly to pure independence, which means pure fee only and give up their licenses. But the next iteration is working with an independent broker dealer who has Having building your own office, but having back office support, if that makes sense. So you can build value in your book of business. You take the step of creating your own office. There are still some conflicts in the form of sales commissions. You, know, you might still sell annuities. You might still collect commissions. And I think that reduces the amount of trust that clients give you. And I think a lot of people don't realize clients, once they pay a commission, they don't ever completely trust you again. And sometimes they hide assets. They won't be solicited for another commission transaction. And when you go fee-only, clients breathe kind of a sigh of relief. They say, all right, I'm not going to be solicited for commissions anymore. I'm not going to have to worry about that. Now, they may not realize that there are other conflicts. They may not see the other conflicts. But the head of the line, to my mind, is the advisors who have not only gone fee-only but are now charging quarterly or monthly flat fees or some kind of subscription model where the fees paid are no longer tied to the portfolio. Um, I see the AUM model as an outgrowth of the sales model. And, you know, one of the lines that I, I use when I give presentations, I say there's no real profession where someone says, how much do you charge? And your answer is, I'm not sure. How much have you got? It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me that, you know, we still charge that way. So to me, the people who are at the front of that line who have evolved to the point where there's not a lot more evolution to go, I guess, are the, the people who are charging quarterly retainers. And I have said many times, I can predict the future based on the way I see the model working. You see people who leave the warehouse world and they go into the independent broker-dealer world and you say, um, you put a gun to their head and you say, go back to the warehouse or I'll pull the trigger. And they say, go ahead and shoot. And then you talk to somebody who has left the independent broker-dealer world and gone fee only and you put the gun to their head and make the same proposition and they say, pull the trigger. 
People don't go from fee only to the brokerage model. They water rolls downhill and downhill is from the brokerage model to the independent broker dealer model to the fee only model. And at the pool at the bottom, I know where, where the profession is going because I can see the pool at the bottom. Yeah, I think that's right. I see it the same way. I think that is the right evolutionary. That is the right way to describe the evolutionary shift for advisors. I want to go back to something you said a little earlier. You talked about how the firm of the future will be professionally managed. But what about a firm that has that's managing, say, less than $500 million under management? At what point does it make financial sense to hire a CEO or COO? Well, you know, professional management or full-time management is another way of saying it. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and hire somebody who's expensive. You know, I, I know a firm that went out and they hired a senior executive from Procter & Gamble. And it was an enormous expense and it didn't work out, which I thought was, you know, very interesting. Chances are you've got a COO in your office who's managing the back office already, or you have somebody who's handling a lot of the back office chores, and you can repurpose that person to be a full-time manager of the firm. In other words, keeping an eye on pretty much everything that needs to happen. Are you familiar with Traction, the book Traction? Yes, yes. And I think it's one of the best management books that's that's out there. And I, I have written about people who are Traction advocates, and they always seem to be growing faster and running more professionally managed firms than anybody else. But the basic concept is that you have somebody who's kind of the idea person, and that's typically the founder. And you have somebody who's the implementer, and that's typically the COO who could become the CEO. I think most firms, no matter how big they are, they need the person who has the ideas and they need the person who's in charge of making these things happen. And it doesn't have to be an enormous expense. It doesn't have to be hiring from the outside. I think the, in most cases, the COO is probably your best choice for full-time management. They're doing a lot of that anyway. Yeah. Bob, what, in your opinion, differentiates the most successful advisors from the rest of the pack? What are the best advisors in the industry doing? Oh, they're all reading my newsletter. That's kind of the... Okay, beyond that. And listening to my podcast. But other than that. And and that's right. You know, and so we got the self-serving part of our our talk out of the way. It is actually true. Interestingly, there is a fairly high percentage of them, but that's because that's my target audience. That's the people who think and read. The most successful advisors think and read. They process a lot of information. And I always see them at at least one or two national conferences. I go to a lot of conferences every year, fewer lately than than most years, but I'm getting back in the swing of it. And you, you see those people over and over again, networking with their peers and joining that kind of elite that is formed out of the national conference scene, if that makes sense. And the very best, the people who are, I think, the most successful Before they go to a conference, they will work out the things that they want to have happen in their business and work that issue into their hallway conversations and find friends who will become colleagues who can help them address those issues and maybe potential study group members. Those people seem to have an unfair advantage over everybody else. I think getting involved with the conference scene and reading and processing information. And I honestly think that the trade magazines have failed us there. 
the trade magazines right now are, are just not helping very much. And so there are, I, I would look for other alternative sources of information. Not just you, not just me. You've got Kitsis.com. You've got other niche service providers who are giving a lot better information than the traditional outlets, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you mentioned study groups, and I know that a lot of top RIA firms, the CEOs of a lot of top RIA firms form study groups. What kind of things do you get? At, would, would a principal of an RIA firm get out of that? What's the benefit of that? You know, it's not just for RIAs anymore. It's not just advisors anymore. There are now, there's now a study group for operations professionals and best practices there. But, you know, you've got more eyes and ears. You've got more people looking at what's going on out there and more people with ideas on. So the first thing you get is a broader perspective. More important than that, I think, is accountability. You say, I intend to do this or that with our firm in the next 12 months. And then you meet four times a year and you've got people you respect who are asking you, or how much progress have you made on this? How have you how have you made that happen? And because you don't want to say to these people, oh, I, I didn't really actually do anything on that. You know, I made no progress. I was too busy. You'll actually do things that you might not do on your own. It's the same thing with clients. You know, you, you talk to clients and you say, you ask the question, you, if you were to die tomorrow, what would be your biggest regret? And they tell you, and it turns out they haven't done anything about that issue in the last five years. Well, it's the same thing with advisors. The world sets your agenda for you unless you take control of it. And having somebody hold you accountable is the best way to force you to take control of your own agenda and not let the world just fill your desk with busy work and so you never get around to the things you want to get around to. Yeah. And I imagine in a COVID world, the last year and a half with every conference in the world being canceled, or at least only virtually, individual study groups where small groups of smart people can get together, even if it's virtual, was probably a very good replacement. Yeah. We've got two study groups that are meeting in our conference this year. And I would schedule your study group around a conference if you can, an in-person conference, because you get kind of a double. The, the biggest cost of attending a conference, the biggest cost of attending in-person a study group meeting is the time out of the office. If you can kind of double that up, I think that is, is a benefit. Yeah. So, Bob, I know your focus is on financial planning firms, and I know your feelings about the wirehouses that people are, can better serve the profession and clients as an independent advisor. But many of the wirehouse advisors we work with are feeling pretty well served in that world. They don't feel limited. They would never succumb to pressure to sell anything. They're okay where they are. What they do complain about is feeling that it's become more bureaucratic and less efficient and that the firms, particularly the bank-owned ones like Merrill Lynch, have become more bankified. You know, we refer to it the bankification of Merrill Lynch. So the advisors inclined to make a move from that world are most frustrated by a lack of control. Any thoughts you'd share with us about that? I think the best advice comes from people who don't have to answer to anybody else. And that addresses another issue. We've got all this, um, this money coming in from the hedge funds and the private equity and whatever in the profession and they're investing and buying financial planning firms and they're, they've become another mouth to feed and another voice at the table. 
the fewer voices you have at the table, the more it's your voice and the client's voice at the table and nobody else, the better service can be offered. I think that's pretty obvious, but I think most people, they talk about the support they get and the, well, the, the support costs. And you can buy support without giving somebody else a voice in how you do things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my, my best advice, and, and especially the compliance stuff, people who work in the brokerage world are treated as if they're salespeople. And I know many of them are not and never will be. And that's not their mindset. But they're supervised as if they are. And that makes no sense whatsoever to their business model. Yeah. Well, I think you hit it on the head. That's exactly right. There are many really good people with good morals who operate as fiduciaries who do not see themselves or act as salespeople, but they are managed as though they are. And that's where the conflict comes in. So could we tell them all to go independent so that I can say terrible things about the brokerage firms and it be a true statement? Uh, can we put that message out there? You're welcome to do that if you'd like, for sure. Let me ask you one final question, Bob. So what's coming down the pike? What's the industry's next big thing? There's two very, very big things. The one I just I talked about earlier, that all advisors are increasingly competing with all other advisors, no matter where they're located in this increasingly virtual world. And that's going to force everybody to find a specialized client. I don't call it a niche anymore. It's a specialization in a certain kind of client. Just as you wouldn't go to a general practitioner and say, you know, I need knee replacement surgery, that general practitioner doctor would never say, well, you know, I'm going to get hospital privileges and I'm going to I'm going to get myself a chainsaw and I'm going to do that operation for you because, you know, it's incremental income to me. That would never happen in the medical profession and 10, 15, 20 years out, that would never happen in the financial services world either. When someone comes to you, you specialize in people who are just coming out of medical residency and somebody is a senior executive at a pharmaceutical firm, you'll refer that person out. That person is not your target clientele. The second is that you've got this middle market. And somehow advisors seem to have forgotten that there's this blue ocean of people with income but not assets. And I think the profession is starting to learn now how to serve those people, serve them profitably, charge them appropriately. And when they do, the number of potential clients for the profession is going to increase 10 or 20-fold. I think the opportunity there is too great to ignore. And many of the advisory firms that I talk to or read my, my newsletter are now exploring How are we going to move into that blue ocean? What are we going to do about that? How are we going to serve a much bigger potential audience? Mm, Interesting. Bob, thank you so much. Your perspectives are terrific and vast. And I'm really grateful for you sharing some of the perspectives from the stuff you've written. And I hope that you will get some new readers from this podcast. So maybe do you want to share how people can subscribe to your work if they want to? I'll share something different. I'll share my email address. You know, a lot of times in my career, people have said, Bob, you're completely full of shit. And a disturbing percentage of the time, they're right. (laughs) And so if any of the people listening to this think I'm full of shit about anything, send me a message. And if you're right, I, I will learn from it. If anybody wants a copy of my newsletter to see what it's like before you subscribe to it, I'd rather you see it before you subscribe to it. 
So my email address is bob at bobveras.com, B-O-B at B-O-B-V-E-R-E-S.com. And send me a message. And if you want to subscribe, I will encourage you to do so and make it easy for you to do it and also send you samples so you know what you're buying. Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. Bob, thank you again for your time, for your wisdom, for your generosity. And we look forward to talking again further. Thank you for having me. Take care. Pleasure. There are few people who have the depth of knowledge that Bob has, yet it's his direct and candid nature that has made him one of the top thought leaders in our industry. And I'm grateful he took the time to share his wisdom with us. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a star rating and a review. That will let other advisors know if it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.